Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. What is happening, gang? We are back with a brand new edition of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. And the wait has been worth it because on today's episode... We have one of the greatest minds in the history of the NFL on the pod today. Joel Bussert, who many people have referred to as his time at the league office as the second most powerful person in football, is on the show today. And we're going to dive into a lot of different aspects of what Joel did at the league office and then what is one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever been a part of. We get to hear Joel's kind of breakdown on three distinct areas in terms of his theory of the game, his theory of the rules, and then his theory of the rule book. This is truly a unique opportunity to dive into the mind of one of the greatest NFL thought leaders in the history of the league. But before we dive into today's show, I wanted to take a minute and talk about one of our favorite sponsors on the pod, Bet Online. We are back and better than ever. A new web interface for the start of basketball season and more props and odds and lines than ever before. Bet Online remains the number one spot for all your basketball and football action this season. So what are you waiting for? Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive up your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE50, B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus from basketball, football, to what was an amazing baseball postseason, to the NHL, to boxing, to UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports action. So what are you waiting for? Head over today. All right, guys, we are back in full effect. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Poling, and this is our interview with Joel Buster. What is happening, gang? We have been away for a few weeks, but we are back. It is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and the wait was worth it because we have an unbelievably special guest today. Rick, who is on the pod today? We have with us a guy who really helped shape the modern NFL, Joe Bussert. And Bill, you're going to add to this, but I really just want to read a couple, a little excerpt from an article by Peter King uh, in SI. Uh, on, that was written on April 9th, 2015. He said, we all know somebody like Joel Bussert. Think him as a cross between the man behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz and the no-nonsense English teacher who marked you down a full grade for one grammatical error in a five-page paper. He said, the Joel Bussert's the world live in the shadows. They like it. They're comfortable with their books and their work projects going home to very private lives. After four decades in the league, Joel's retiring. Uh, but he is, he lords over the NFL rulebook more than anybody responsible for the spate of rules, protect defenseless receivers, banning helmet to helmet. And he's also the schoolmaster who runs the competition committees, uh, committee meetings every year in Indianapolis and Florida. Yet 98% of Americans, even football fans, 
don't have no idea. I've never held a Gerald Bussard. To which Tagliabue, 98% said former commissioner Tagliabue, Bussard's boss for 17 years. You're way too generous. That's going to be 99.9. So we're bringing you. <laughs> so the jig is up. We're revealing to America today the real Joel Bussert. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. All right. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, let me give you a little background on, on Joel's background. Thank you for joining us, Joel. Uh, I know this is, a, this is a heavy lift for you, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Joel uh, graduated from Valparaiso University in Valparaiso, Indiana. Uh, it, 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 he began his career as a writer for a number of Midwestern newspapers, uh, particularly in Illinois. Uh, joined the Sporting News uh, when it was in its heyday in, in St. Louis. For those of you that don't remember the Sporting News, it was called the Baseball Bible, but it really could have been called the Bible of the sports world. It, it came out weekly and, and, and gave you everything you needed to know about every sport everywhere. Um, he then joined the Elias Sports Bureau in New York, which is the repository in the final uh, arbiter on everything statistical in all of the major professional sports. Uh, and then in 1975, uh, joined the NFL in their personnel department, working directly for the legendary Pete Rozelle and uh, equally legendary, but uh, uh, certainly not as well-known Don Weiss, the executive director of the NFL. Um, I had the, uh, the the pleasure of, of of working for 20 years with Joel on the competition committee as an executive in the league and have the absolute highest regard for him, as did Don Weiss and did Pete Rozelle and Paul Tagliabue and Roger Goodell. Um, he is uh, was the indispensable man when it came to rules um, personnel decisions, everything that affected the day-to-day -day rosters and, and, and operation of the National Football League on the field was in Joel's purview. And I think it's safe to say there will never be a more knowledgeable, nor honorable person um, who, who, who will serve in that role in the years to come. He's the, he's the, he's the gold standard for every league office employee. Um, now, Peter King is also right. He, he, he was prone to mark you down a full grade for a grammatical error in a five-page paper. And <laughs> I can tell you that firsthand. <laughs> but uh, but there's, there's no one more dedicated, no one more responsive or caring about the National Football League, including every single one of the 32 owners than Joel Bussert. So uh, he is the, the living and breathing authority on the rules and on personnel um, movement in the NFL. And it's, uh, it's an honor to have him on board. With that, Joel, the floor and the microphone is yours. All right, thank you. Thank you for those glowing statements. Uh, I hope I live up to your expectations today. I, I became the, uh, well, I was, I, I've been working with the competition committee, I think since 1987. Uh, I still uh, work as a consultant advisor to the league. Uh, but big, from uh, 1998 through 2015, I was the lead liaison with the committee. And uh, just to explain, some of the ways that uh, I tried to uh, kind of formulate my own ideas and uh, assist in the uh, direction of the committee. Uh, there, there were a few things that always guided me. One, 
I felt you had to have a, uh, in terms of what we were doing at the committee, I thought, first of all, you had to have a, have a theory of the game. And you had to have a theory of the playing rules, and you had to have a theory of the rule book itself. Uh, now, these things all kind of blend together a little bit. They overlap. Uh, even the way I thought of them in my own mind, uh, it probably wasn't so clear cut. But I thought, uh, I, I tried to uh, sort, sort each one of those things out because I thought that was critical to us achieving what we wanted to achieve. With respect to the theory of the game, I, expect, I expressed it in a formula, which I, I developed plays plus passes plus penalties equals points. Try to say that fast. It's quite <laughs> Now, I, I've always kind of believed in this, but I must, I must say, I, I can't uh, tell you that it's, it's uh, entirely original. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of, of Shorty Ray, and I think you'll hear a little bit more about him perhaps as we go along who was the league's technical advisor was his title from 1938 through 1952. And he was also, although he never had the title, he was the de facto supervisor of officials. Uh, and he first became associated with the National Football League probably about 1932, uh, when George Hallis became the uh, chairman of the NFL's first rules committee. Uh, Shorty Ray lived in Chicago all of his life, uh, except for four years as a uh, student at the University of Illinois where I think he participated in, in all three sports, football, basketball, baseball. After he graduates, he returns to Chicago. He's for 25 years a teacher in the Chicago public school system. He's also a big 10 official in football, basketball, baseball. He has a particular interest in football and football playing rules and officiating. He assisted, I think he organized the first uh, officiating organization in, in the Chicago area about 1920. And uh, the football world in 1920 in Chicago was pretty small. Professional football is not a big deal. He and George Hallis crossed paths. Maybe they even knew each other all the way back to when Shorty Ray was officiating high school games and George Hallis was playing in high school games. But Hallis recognizes in Shorty Ray, as, as Hallis was very good at doing, by the way, uh, someone who could help the NFL. And uh, so Shorty Ray becomes associated with the NFL and George Hallis as early as 1932. And he's going to play a very critical role uh, in developing playing rules. And uh, he wrote reports at the end of each season. Many of them are on file at the Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, uh, where I uh, ran across them, made copies of them, studied them. I learned a lot from those reports and from Shorty Ray. Now, Shorty Ray was a guy in the 30s, when no one else was thinking about it, he was thinking about plays, plays, plays. How do we create more plays in football games? You create more plays with the clock rules. If you stop the game clock and conserve game time, you will create more plays. Now, uh, and I think Shorty Ray, from reading his reports, which have had a great impact on my own thinking, Shorty understood, uh, I think, uh, that uh, the connection between points and plays. Uh, and just to go through through all four of these things, plays uh, on a bedrock level, plays are what we're selling to the American public. That's the action. Uh, there's only about 15 minutes of game action in a football game that lasts three hours and five minutes. But that those 15 minutes are obviously what the fans come to see. We kind of we're, we're shooting for about 155 plays per game. 
Uh, and we come pretty close to that each year. I think you can, if you work on the, the clock rules, uh, you're not going to hit that number every time. It's not an exact science, but I think you can come pretty close. And, and 155 plays is what we're looking for. And plays drives everything else. If you want more points, add more plays. Uh, if you think there are too many points, change the clock rules, take plays out of the game. You'll take points out of the game. But everything else is a byproduct of the number of plays. With regard to passes, we're a passing league. We make we made our bones on the passing game. We've passing yards first exceeded rushing yards in the National Football League in 1939. And there have only been three seasons since then when rushing yards have exceeded passing yards. Now, in 1939, when we were getting 51.4% of our scrimmage yards through the air, uh, the colleges were getting about 34 or 35% through the air. College football was a running game. Uh, it would remain a running game for two more generations. But as early as 1939, we were throwing the ball. And... Uh, as we, you will find out later on as we, we discuss uh, some of the chronological changes that were made, that was the result of some changes in the playing rules that we were making in the 30s because we had a president. We didn't have a commissioner in those days. The president was the leader of the league. We had a president, Joe Carr, who well understood that NFL games needed to be exciting, and, and they weren't. Uh, we started changing some rules. Uh, we were, uh, Joe Carr uh, and, and Shorty Ray even wrote it in one of his reports, we're in the entertainment business, but uh, until we got active in the 30s, where was the entertainment? So uh, we're a passing lead. Next, penalties. Uh, if you listen to some people, if you listen to some clubs complain about penalties, you'd think penalties were a bad thing. If you listen to some of the people uh, who write for newspapers or broadcast games, you'd think penalties were a bad game. Bad thing. There, there's one play-by-play -play announcer I listen to. Uh, he almost he acts like it's almost a personal thing when an official calls a penalty. <laughs> penalties are not a bad thing. Penalties are a good thing. Fouls. Fouls are a bad thing. When a player commits a foul, he is either attempting or is accidentally going to gain an advantage that is outside the playing rules. And when a player commits a foul, an official has to penalize that foul. Uh, and penalties assure that the outcome of the game is fair and valid. And I think equally important, they protect the playmakers, quarterbacks, the runners, the receivers. They protect them and uh, they make certain that they will be able to exhibit their skills within the parameters of the playing rules that have been created. We have particularly special, well, we have special rules for all three groups of players, and we'll, we'll have an opportunity to talk about those a little later on for the passers, runners, receivers. So that's, that's the, uh, what I think is the core theory of the game. The theory of the playing rules, I think, uh, has to support the theory of the game. And uh, as I've said, the passing game is our crown jewel, and so... Any rule that hurts the passing game is, is going to hurt the game. It's going to hurt the National Football League. Uh, and I think when we're developing rules, we have, to, we have to understand that. We have to protect the passing game. And I think that's why uh, 
the illegal contact rule, uh, which we'll also talk about a little later on, which uh, says that you cannot chuck a receiver more than five yards beyond the line of scrimmage. That's a very important rule in our league. Uh, it's why defensive pass interference is a spot foul, not a 15-yard foul, no, not, not a 15-yard penalty as it is in college. Incidentally, I also think it's, I think it's a spot foul in high school, if I recall correctly. But uh, occasionally we get suggestions, well, why shouldn't it be a 15-yard penalty? But I think, and, and chime in, Bill, if you agree or disagree, I think if it was a 15-yard penalty, you wouldn't just be changing the penalty. You'd be changing the relationship between the defender and the receiver. I think there would be much more aggressive coverage. Uh, if that starts to dry up the passing game, that's not so good. I think there would be more contact. And I think if there's more contact, the call itself would probably be more subjective, perhaps more controversial than it already is. So, I, so the point is, there's a lot more than just saying, okay, let's change this penalty. There, there are ramifications that affect uh, the theory of the game and uh, the league's ability to uh, present the sort of exciting uh, game that we present every Sunday uh, where uh, we've got fourth quarter comebacks, rallies from 10-point deficits, uh, fantastic finishes. Uh, all of those things have to be thought about. Another example are the timing rules. I, uh, occasionally we get suggestions to send, change some clock rules. And uh, you know, either the, usually the play clock, uh, excuse me, usually the game clock. And, and I, my contention is if, I were, if we're going to change clock rules, it has to be from a global approach because changing clock rules will affect the number of plays in the game. If, we, if we're, if we're going to let the clock run for periods of time during which is now stopped, that will destroy plays. Uh, reduce the number of plays in the game, something less than 155. And moreover, uh, I think it also has the, uh, well, that, that's the principal thing. Now, just to give you a little background, for instance, on the clock rules, it's been so long ago, you have to be as old as Bill or I am to even remember this. <laughs> prior, prior to 1985, prior to 1985, after every out of bounds, after the enforcement of every penalty, the game clock next started on the snap. Now, in the mid-80s, our game time, because we're doing a lot more passing, and, and we've added commercial minutes, uh, our game time finally has reached three hours and 11 minutes, which seemed a little long to everybody. Uh, and we were trying to compress game time. So we did that by letting the game clock run during periods when it had previously been stopped. And we did two principal changes. If a runner goes out of bounds, the ball will start on the, on the ready for play signal instead of on the snap. Uh, after a penalty enforcement, if the clock is not stopped for some other reason, like an incomplete pass, once again, the game clock will start on the ready for play signal, not on the snap. Now that probably took uh, three minutes out of the game, maybe a little more we're shortening the game in real time by three, four minutes or something on that order. And we're also losing plays at the rate of about two and a half a minute. Now we recaptured those plays by reducing the play clock from 45 seconds to 40 seconds. Teams are being forced uh, to snap the ball a little faster 
than they previously would have. And uh, since the game clock, time is probably in on about half of the 125 ball control plays. Uh, and, and so that was the way that we picked up the plays. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't do a very good job of this, by the way, because it took us a couple of years to straighten it out. We could have done a better job. Uh, but we balanced out the plays where we wanted it to be. And we did uh, reduce overall, play to, uh, overall game time by four or five minutes. Uh, but an important exception. There's always an exception to almost every NFL rule. Important exception. We said in the last two minutes of the first half, in the last five minutes of the game, we're going to stay with the old rule. After every out of bounds, after every penalty enforcement, the game clock will start on the snap, the old rule. Uh, and the reason for that was uh, those are probably the two most exciting plays, parts of the games, especially the last five minutes of an NFL game. And we wanted to maximize plays in those time periods. We wanted, especially in the fourth period, to maximize the opportunity for comebacks, for what NFL Films has always called fantastic finishes, and we've got plenty of them. And so we wanted to uh, maintain the number of plays in those time periods. Now, sometimes people, you know, people who are not familiar with that history, occasionally they say, well, why, aren't, why shouldn't the rules be the same in the last two and five as they are throughout the game? Uh, and they perceive sometimes that they are at a disadvantage for one reason or another because of the now unique time period in the last five minutes. But the reason is the overall quality of the game, what we're trying to achieve. And that's why I say, if we're, if we're going to play with this, uh, it has to be a global approach that takes into account all these factors. Uh, the total number of plays per game, uh, the excitement in those two time frames uh, has to be a, a critical part of our thinking. Uh, now, moving on to the theory of the rule book, the rule book has to express the theory of the game uh, and has to express the theory of the rules. Interesting thing about the playing rules. If I showed you, people frequently complain, by the way, about the complexity of NFL rules. If I showed you a 1920 rule book, which was the first year that the league started playing, and we were, we were playing by college rules, I happen to have a copy here in my hand. <laughs> It's the pages are five by seven, okay? 64 pages long. Okay. The 2021 NFL rule book, which is eight and a half by 11, the, the text of the rules itself is 88 pages. The case, the case book, which includes approved rulings, is 114 pages. The instant replay case book, which I incidentally think is beyond the comprehension of a normal human being, is 33 pages long. Admittedly, there are a lot more words, and uh, we can't get around that. But I think the uh, important thing to remember is this, uh, and, I, and there's, there's a referee, a former referee. He was a good, very good referee, but he used, to, he used to offer some reservations about the number of words in the NFL playing rules, and, and he used to say, oh, we know it when we see it. But that, you know, that can't be the standard yeah. <laughs> of playing rules. You're not going to achieve much consistency if that's your standard. Now, the principal difference between 1920 and 2021, I think, is this. And as a matter of fact, in 1920, people would complain about rules. They would say they're not clear, they're not explicit, they're vague. And I think those were probably all fairly legitimate complaints. And I think the, the consistency of officiating, I think, varied widely from 
not just region to region, maybe from county to county and state to state. Uh, there was no television in uh, 1920. Uh, radio was in its infancy. Uh, so there wasn't anywhere near the sort of uh, interaction there is now. And I think the rules now, they're much more detailed, they're much more specific. And detail and specificity uh, is the, the key, I think, to achieving consistency in the playing rules. Uh, the goal is that uh, a touchdown in uh, Seattle is a touchdown in Miami. Uh, a catch in Foxborough is a touch, uh, catch in San Diego or Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, the way you do that is uh, with specificity and detail. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, first of all, a prelude to that. Uh, around 1980, we, we, we tried to... Uh, we were trying to take on unnecessary roughness, player safety or arising from an incident that we had had a very serious uh, incident and injury. And it really wasn't very successful because I don't think it was as detailed or specific as it needed to be. Now, seven years later, we're addressing roughing the passer. You were in the league, Bill. You may, may have some re recollection of this. Prior to 1987, the playing rules didn't say much more than thou shalt not rush Thou, thou shalt not rough the passer. That was about it. One sentence. There had a few had a few notes, and you know that that doesn't that doesn't really get it done in terms of consistency or getting the rules officiated the way you'd like to get them officiated. Uh, and so in 1987, we rewrote or the committee rewrote roughing the passer, and now uh, instead of a single sentence, it occupies about two thirds or three fourths of one of those eight and a half by eleven pages. But I think it's officiated much more consistently, and I think it's officiated uh, the way we want it to be officiated. Don't chime in if you don't think so. Uh, but I think this has been a very successful rule. And prior to writing, prior prior to the writing rewriting of this rule, we looked at a lot of video. We looked at the plays that were being called. We looked at the plays that should have been called, and we described many of them as examples in the rules of what we wanted called. And I think that detail and that specificity has made that rule a very successful thing. Same thing in 1994 and 1995 and in subsequent years, but 94 or five was when we first began to address the, uh, the defenseless player, uh, which also takes up about two thirds or three fourths of one of those big pages on the rule book. Uh, defenseless player, it, it's a tough call, uh, but I think I think it's been a successful call, uh, though it's a very difficult call. And I think the specificity and detail of the rule book has assisted us in achieving that. So I think those those things are the uh, sort of a very broad outline of, uh, of the thoughts that I uh, things that I. Let me ask you this, because uh, you you hit on a lot of things we've discussed in other ways before. Let me, so I have two questions. One is when we talk about the, the sort of the 155 as the um, idealized number, uh, you know, Bill has talked about in the past, some of the colleges where they're trying to run 90 plays on a team. Uh, so there must, there's obviously some balance between wanting to keep the action as ongoing as possible, but you're having, you're balancing that against fatigue and injury aren't you and and if if that's the case how do you how did you derive the 155 as the optimal well it's that that was uh probably a uh 
traditional number. I think when you uh, look at the history of plays per game, that that was a the one fifty five is about matches up with a three hour, three hour and five minute game. Uh, if we wanted to, if we wanted more, I think uh, the games would be too long. Uh, I don't think we'd want to be above one fifty five. If you're less than one fifty five, uh, and Let's say you're at 149. I, I don't consider 154, 153 and a half to be a big deal, by the way. But if you're getting down around 150, 149, you're eliminating what I call the last response in a football game. It's that, uh, you know, the thing, you're eliminating uh, one of those fantastic finishes is what happens when you start chopping, chopping down uh, the number of plays per game. I think, I think 155 is incidentally a number where, uh, especially with the rosters that we have, the big roster size. I don't think that's a uh, too demanding a number for our players. No, it, it's, 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 Joel's exactly right. That's, it's, that's the traditional number that all of us who have grown up in the game accept just like 10 yards for a first down. It is what it is. And, and it works. It's, it's just like uh, 90 feet between the bases in baseball. It works. It's been there seemingly forever. And, uh, and it works, and it's always the touchstone upon which we build everything else. Let me add just a little color to what uh, on-field color to what Joel described. Um, oftentimes, you will hear coaches and 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 commentators refer to four-minute offense. Four-minute offense is when the uh, the team that's leading the game wants to create enough first downs to eat up the clock without the opponent ever getting another chance at it. Now that's principally through the run game and it's principally by causing the other team to utilize their timeouts on defense and, and, and all of those kinds of things. But if you think about two and five, four minute always occurs in the second half. And the reason it's four minutes is because of the two and five timing rules. And oftentimes you will hear and you'll see a rookie player or a young or a dumb player make a mistake and run out of bounds when they have the ball and their team possesses the ball inside five minutes. And the coaches on the bench will holler at him. The broadcaster will say, that's a tragic mistake. He's got to know to keep the, keep the, keep the clock running. That's what two and five, that's the practical effect of two and five. And if you're good enough, assuming that the opposition has has uh, hoarded their times out so that they have three left in order to, uh, assuming they're going to call times out appropriately to stop the clock, you essentially have to get two first downs within within four minutes where you utilize uh, at least three of the four downs in order to close the game out in four minutes. So. That's the, der the, der the derivation of all of that talk that you hear at the end of the game uh, when it's not, it's not a team driving to come from behind, when it's a team trying to close the game out, it is just based on the, on the two and five rules. Makes sense. Joel, talk about, if you will, the influence of the committee chairman during your time on the committee, because there are obviously many of them colorful characters and, and generally the makeup of the competition committee and, and, and how you set the agenda for the committee. I emphasize I no longer do that. But uh, during my years, I, let's see, the committee chairman, Tex Shrama, was the chairman for about the first 22 years. Uh, well, 
from 68 to 90, he was chairman. Uh, then Jim Finks was the chairman for about three years. I think George Young was chairman, co-chairman along with Don Shula. And then for about uh, the last 20, 25 years, Rich uh, McKay of Tampa Bay has been the chairman. I think they're all a little different, but I think all of them were very capable chairman. We're fortunate to have people that dedicated. Uh, it does tell you that the chairman, especially on the committee, has to put in a lot of time, partly because when I was the lead liaison, I was always uh, bugging him constantly, uh, my own ideas. Uh, but I, I think uh, with regard to text, you know, when he, when he came along in 1968, now the rules, there hadn't been a lot of rules changes for probably six or eight years. Uh, from 68 through 66, uh, the NFL was battling the American Football League. Uh, they may have had something to do with it. Maybe they were just too busy to, to, get, to consider uh, many changes to the playing rules. But uh, after Shorty Ray left, uh, there was probably a little bit of a vacuum after Shorty Ray left the league in 1952. And I think by the time Tex becomes chairman in 1968, it's time to consider some things. Uh, uh, you know how things can pile up, Bill, in, in that area. And I think that it was time to consider some changes uh, uh, to uh, keep the game uh, appealing to the uh, public, most noticeably, I think, in the area of uh, the passing game, because the uh, techniques of the defensive players had changed in the 60s, uh, which had an effect on the passing game. So Tex was confronted with a uh, a unique set of challenges uh, in that period, that early period especially. And I think as you move through the the, uh, the the whole period of time, by the time you get to the late 80s and 90s, as I alluded to earlier, we, uh, player safety became a, a uh, probably the most important thing. The balance, the offense-defense balance, I think we, we knew where we wanted to be and we had found ways to address that. Player safety now was uh, probably the thing that was for, in the forefront, and, and I think once again the uh, the chairman that we had uh, responded to that challenge and uh, explored uh, creative ways to address it. Uh, with respect to the makeup of the committee, you know, in the seventies and eighties there was a smaller committee, maybe only four or five people. Eventually, we settled into kind of a pattern uh, for a long time where we had two owners two club presidents, two general managers, two head coaches. I think during most of the years you were on it, Bill, that was probably the makeup of the committee. And I thought that was pretty, I thought, I thought that was a pretty balanced uh, committee when we had it uh, shaped that way. You know, each group has certain uh, things, uh, certain aspects that are probably important to them. Certainly the owners have to look out for the overall well-being of the league. But I think, and uh, I think it was a good balance. Did, did different chairmen uh, either bring a point of view or, or their own agenda that would help drive it during their tenure, or was everyone just responsive to things that came up? Well, you know, what's going on in the league at any given time is going to affect your, your agenda, your thinking. And throughout the year, for instance, people would call me and if they had ideas for changes or whatever. And sometimes they would, they would contact the chairman directly and he would pass it on to me. But I was the one who was effectively kind of compiling the master agenda, uh, the master list of topics that we're going to consider. Uh, we, would, we would watch, uh, we're, we're keeping pretty close track of passes, plays, 
penalties points uh, at the end of each season. Moreover, I'd have to say this, uh, and Bill would be well aware of this. I used to call it the big six because sooner or later, every competition committee ends up being consumed by either offensive holding, defensive holding, offensive pass interference, defensive pass interference, illegal contact, false starts. Those, are, those account for a, a bunch of the penalties that are called during a season. And those are probably the plays that require the most attention in terms of rules, examination, and so forth and so on. There are other things that will change from time to time. The two-point play, for instance, on the extra point or where you kick the extra point from, so forth and so on. But those come up once. You might address that once every generation. Uh, but what we call the big six, uh, you're coming back to those time after time after time. And for a while, we, always, we tried to, to kind of rotate through those six and focus on each me. Uh, you know, one year we'd, we'd look at offensive holding pretty hard and see what, what we were doing there and how we wanted it officiated. And the next year we look at defensive holding or illegal contact, move through, through those and make sure that we're each year, each year, every couple of years, addressing them, reviewing them, seeing where we are uh, in terms of if it's being translated in the field the way the rule has been designed. Two little notes here, Rick. In terms of agenda, great and funny story. When I first joined the committee, Don Weiss was transitioning off and Joel was taking over, but Don did my orientation and, and, and explained to me that when you're when you're a member of the competition committee, you have your club experiences to draw from, but you check your club affiliation at the door. You're, you're there for the good of the game and, and in order to make the game better, not to gain an individual advantage uh, for your own club. And with rare few exceptions for the 20 years that I served, that was always the ethos of, of every member. But the funniest part of it was that Joel, while Joel was working on the editing and things like that on Wednesday and Saturday afternoons, um, we would go and play golf. The members would go and play golf. And, and, and Jim Finks was not a golfer and didn't care to, but he was the ultimate team guy. And so he'd go along and play. And I was the worst golfer. And, uh, and, uh, and, and Paul Brown was at one point probably the best golfer, but he was then in his 80s, late 70s and 80s. And, and couldn't hit it very far, but he could he could knock a putt in from 50 feet with his with his eyes closed. So as it turned out, I would drive Paul and Jim to the golf course every day. And and during those drives to and from the golf course, we'd do nothing but talk football. And I and I got a I got a an education, a PhD in football and football history from Paul Brown and Jim Finks. Um, many of the stories being colorful and really not appropriate for even a program <laughs> like this. But Paul Brown once said to me, second or third year on the committee, he said, Billy boy, you know why you're on, you're on this committee? I said, yes, sir. I think to, 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 you know, to try and do the best we can to make the game as good as we can. And he said, well, that's well said, but the answer is really this. We're the guardians of the game. We're here to protect the game from the t-shirt salesman. <laughs> 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 so that's a slightly different maybe more jaundiced point of view 
than, than Joel or Don Weiss had, but 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 in the ballpark for sure. Yeah, that's, it's yeah. In fact, you know, now in ventures, it says as you walk through, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it's, it's not to say that there weren't disagreements on the committee. There were, but everybody had such incredible respect for one another that we were able to 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 work our way through it. Joel, was there a time? I, I think I think. Paul Brown told me this at one point. Was there a time when the committee originally was formed when it consisted of Vince Lombardi and Wellington Barra? I think in 1968, 69, it was, uh, actually I have the, the list here somewhere, but Tex was the chairman. Wellington Merrill was on it, Vince Lombardi was on it. And I think, I'm trying to remember, was it Lamar Hunt or Al Davis that was on it? But it was just those four people. And I think one was one was from the American Football League, which was being merged into the NFL. And I would have wanted, in, in response to the question you answered, asked earlier about chairman, well, three things. One, I think every member of the committee, every member of the, who's ever served on this committee was had a deep sense of pride about it, uh, but also uh, they understood, uh, I think, the responsibility uh, they took this idea of being guard. They, they understood without anybody having to tell them that they were guardians of the game. And they took that, uh, that responsibility very, very, very seriously. I remember one time, well, after when the day was over, let's say at five o'clock, if everybody, if the club people didn't go out to play golf, or maybe they were coming back from golf, uh, and we'd get together and uh, have a little hour where we uh, relaxed. And uh, I remember one, day, one time we, we sort of fell into a discussion about uh, who were the, uh, you know, well, well, the people in the room were Jim Finks, Don Shula, Paul Brown. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else might have been there, Bill. But these were Tom people. Who, no, no, I mean, no, Tom wasn't there yet. It, it, was, it was all these, see, Finks, you know, uh, Paul Brown went back to 1946. Don Shula uh, began playing in the league in 50 two or three, and then quickly segued into a 33-year coaching career. Jim Finks started playing with the Steelers in 48 and went to Canada for a decade, but then he was in the NFL after that for 20 or so years. So these people, they came into the National Football League, as I said earlier, it was pretty small potatoes. And now they'd seen it become this juggernaut of the sports world. And we were talking, they were talking about you know, how did we get there? Who were the key, key people who did this? How did we achieve this? They were reminiscing, in other words. And they were talking about, you know, Pete Rosal and all the key people. And finally, this went on for a while. And Jim Finks said, as only Jim could, he said, ah, fellas, we've got the best game. And I think that pretty much summed it up. We've got the best game. The other thing I would say, just to show the tie back, tie back to this respect that they had for the committee. I, I remember one time we were, I think it was always always on the last night we would try to have a a dinner uh, where every everybody from the committee and all the liaisons from the league would be there, uh, and and some of them had their wives. And I remember Tex made a, a speech. Uh, he was in a reflective mood, I guess, and he started talking about this, and you could hear a pin drop. And and he felt. Uh, very, very, uh, he had very strong emotions about the committee and the work it did. But I remember him saying to us, and I said, you matter. 
He said, you matter because you care. And uh, I think it had a powerful uh, impact on everybody who listened to him that night uh, because he, he was speaking from the heart. Uh, and I think summing up how he felt about the committee and probably felt how, how he felt about people who, uh, who contributed to the committee and worked on it and so forth. Interestingly enough, four years or so ago, I was at the Hall of Fame and, and meeting with two other former members of the committee who, who were Hall of Famers. And, uh, and, and one of them said to me, what's the highest honor, the gold jacket or the competition <laughs> committee? And, and I said, without hesitation, the competition committee. And I thought everybody would laugh at me. And the other two guys said, you're so right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> well, can I ask who were the other two? I think Tom Flores was one. And I, I can't remember who the third person was. Uh, it wasn't Don because he was ill. at the, It may have been Don. I think he was ill at the time. I can't remember who the, the other person was. But, it, but it, it, it was, I was stunned that the other two people felt the way I did. But, and, I, and I think if you, if you survey every member of the committee over the years, they'll tell you that there's no greater honor than to serve on the competition committee. No, no more fun, by the way. <laughs> I'll tell you another. I'll tell you another thing. Uh, another anecdote about Jim Finks. Uh, one time, Jim and I, and actually, this was at Indianapolis at the combine. We we went out to dinner one night with with some other. It might have been some other members of his organization, and so I don't know. I mean, somebody must have asked how Jim and I knew each other or whatever. Whatever. But Jim was saying, well, we're, we're always working together in the competition committee every year. And then I asked him, well, what does the competition committee do? And he sort of, so he's laying out how, how you know, the various things we're, we're engaged in. And then at the conclusion, he says, ah, it's just the best two weeks of the year. And <laughs> 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 you know something? Probably, hey, yeah. Bill, yeah. I, always, I always felt that way about it. Right. I mean, what's better? than to spend two weeks with football people talking about football. I mean, yeah. and, I, and Bill, I've had people say to me, boy, I wish I, you know, they, they express some envy. Boy, I wish I had been able to experience the things you experienced with that committee. Uh, right, yeah. But I think it is, a, a, it's almost, it's an honored, uh, among the football people in our league, it's a very honored uh, experience, I think. Was that, uh, in, was that indie dinner at St. Elmo's? It, it was not. Oh, okay. That to me is a rite of passage. You know? Well, we went somewhere where we could hear each other. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Another anecdote that alludes to what Joe was talking about with, with text. It had to be my first or second year on the committee. Uh, we were in Maui, Hawaii, and my wife was with me. And as Joel knows, my wife is a social animal and doesn't, you know, she's, she's, she follows football and she's a fan, but she's not consumed by it. Um, and, and we, we were in that five o'clock happy hour. And, and Dave Nelson, uh, who played in, 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 at Michigan with, with Tom Harmon and, and uh, Forrest Evashevsky in the same backfield, and who essentially invented the wing tee formation uh, later on as the coach at Delaware and then the, the uh, athletic director at Delaware, Delaware, was the NCAA liaison to the committee. He was the NCAA rules chairman. So he was there every year, as is the rules chairman, I guess, to this day. And so Paul Brown and Jim Finks and Dave Nelson, um, I don't, can't remember whether Marty was there or not. I, I can't remember those three, though, for sure. 
began, oh, and Don Weiss began to reminisce and talk about, and, and Paul Brown said, you know, Fritz Chrysler was a no good, lousy guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he began to tell some stories about how they competed against each other when he was at Ohio State. Fritz, of course, was at, 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 at Michigan. And, and Fielding Yost came up. You know, Fielding Yost is a legendary coach yeah. in, the, in, yeah. the, in the very beginnings of the game. And, and, and Paul Brown said, oh, yeah, I remember him. <laughs> and so Fielding Yost uh, sort of little anecdotes. So my wife is seated next to me, and she's tapping me on the knee saying, it's time to go. We have to go to dinner. we got reservations. We have to go to dinner with the Flores this time. And I said, just take it easy, will you please? So finally, it broke up. We got in the car and she said, if you hadn't come, I was going to get in the car by myself. I said, you would have gone by yourself because <laughs> I was there listening to football <laughs> history from legend. I was going to leave to go to dinner. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, when I got involved, the, the and why I asked about the chairman was, um, I think the human beings and, and the, I obviously had a lot of great ones there because like when I first got involved, it, Wellington Mara and Dan Rooney were the two owner members of the PCRC, the player club relations committee, you know, that for our listeners is the step before having to go to arbitration. And when they were there, they were so fair and so open-minded and voted with integrity that many times you had to get three votes to stop it. So a player would cross over and vote with them or one of them or both of them would cross over and vote with the player. But as soon as they left, I won't talk about who took their place. When it was a different owner who came in, the entire thing fell apart. So to me, to have people who really have that kind of integrity and have the best interest of the game, including the players at heart is, is really the essence of things. And the committee has been either somebody did a great job of selection or, uh, you know, it's one of the great random acts of all time, because those are some great names. Well, when you stop and think about it, and Joel said it more eloquently than I can, but when you stop and think about it, and, and, it, and it occurred to me my very first year on the committee, you're sitting in the same seat that Vince Lombardi and Wellington Merrin and Al Davis and Tex Ram sat in. That's, that's, that's rarefied air. For someone that, that that grew up as a you know as a football fan, idolizing those people, that's 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 rare territory. So it, it does, you're in a you're in a, in a in a group, a fraternity, if you will, of people that that left a significant significant mark on the game and, and the history of the game. Joel, um, touch for a minute, if you will, on Art McNally, uh, the newest Hall of Famer and very deserving, of course, uh, and then the role that the officiating department plays in conjunction with the competition committee. Well, I have, I have uh, great respect for Art McNally and I'm delighted that I feel he's finally getting the recognition that he deserves. I think uh, you know, Art, Art was the uh, supervisor of officials from about 1970 to about 1990. And this was probably, this, this was a very difficult time uh, to be running the officiating department. And I think part of it was uh, as a result of implementation of instant replay by the networks. This is not, this is before it became an officiating aid in 1986. Instant replay is, is uh, invented, I think, by Tony Verna in 1963. You see, invents it 
uh, for the use of uh, sports events. And I think as a result of that, when, when Art becomes the supervisor of officials in 1970 or 71, he, he is becoming the supervisor during a period of time when there is much, much more scrutiny on officiating than ever before. You know, when I was growing up in the 50s, watching football, so some, you know, a play happens, a call is made. Well, even if someone thinks it's a lousy call, I mean, you know, it's, it's off into history, just like that. <laughs> no one's ever going to see it again. Uh, no one's ever going to analyze it again. Uh, it's, it's gone that quickly. Whereas uh, now with the, in the seventies with network television, uh, I don't know, every, every uh, controversial play is being looked at, analyzed, overanalyzed. It's a complete, and, and it's subtly shifting a major portion of the focus of not only the telecast, but the fans, the games, to officiating, uh, not to the great plays of Johnny Unitas and Sonny Jurgensen and Jim Brown and uh, all these other players. Uh, and, and so he he had he had a great great challenge that I don't think any previous uh, any previous uh, supervisor of officials had to contend with. I think he helped. Uh, I think he professionalized uh, our officiating staff. I, I think. Uh, upgraded it, uh, they began to, uh, uh, in, in a more organized manner, uh, uh, scout officials at the uh, collegiate level, uh, finding people they might want to bring into the league. Uh, and of course, just the, the, uh, the technology is improving each year. You're better able, there, there are things you're better able to do in terms of training them. Uh, he also, I thought, brought great integrity to the position which is not to say that people who preceded him or followed him didn't have it, but Art uh, was just, a, and then, well, Jim Tunney probably says it best. Uh, there was a line he once expressed, I'd, I'd play poker with him over the phone. <laughs> that's, how much I, that's how much I trust Art McNally. And I'd say, now you were talking, Rick, about the integrity of the Wellington Mayor and Dan Rooney brought to the, the yeah, committee. What was that committee again? I should know. Uh, the PCRC, Player Club Relations Committee. You no, know, they they were trying. They just brought a uh, a great integrity to it. Uh, tried to find the, the the true facts of the case, uh, irrespective of whether you know maybe it hurt a club, maybe it uh, helped a club. But right, you know, the facts were the facts. You know, Art had that same sort of integrity, and, and clubs often clubs have said to me, "No, when when you talked to Art McNally in September, you knew the message was going to be the same in December." as it was in September. You knew the message you were getting was going to be the same message that was being delivered to every other club in the league. Uh, you knew when Art McNally looked at a play and said, that's holding. You know, it was straight from the heart, the gut. That's holding. There's no politics, no nothing. That's holding. Yeah. 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 Now, not every, he, he could, somehow he could project that confidence in the people that he was talking to. And uh, that, that's a huge part of being a, a good supervisor of officials, I believe. Joel, we, we've kept you too long already, but no, I'm, I'm just getting warmed up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you take us through the evolution of the passing rules and and how it how it it dealt with the growth of the passing game that we we now see today? Okay, I would like to talk about that. Okay, let me go. There, there are probably two. Uh, Two separate areas I want to talk about in terms of developing the passing game. 
the 30s for one, the 70s for the second. Now, as a pro, you do this discussion. When the National Football League was organized in 1920, from 1920 through 1931, we're playing by the college rules. When the colleges change a rule, the rule changes in the National Football League. It might be good for the National Football League. It might be bad for the National Football It doesn't really matter. We're just playing by the college rules. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in that, in that period of time, I've only found one instance in reviewing the minutes from 20 to 31, in which a club even suggested one playing rule change. Uh, and uh, otherwise, the college might, colleges might change nine or 10 rules at their uh, January, February meeting. And they weren't even really discussed at the NFL meeting. It was just assumed we were going to do the same thing. Now, in 1932, that changes. And uh, Joe Carr, the president, appoints a rules committee. George Hallis is the chairman. Uh, what happens in 1932 is this. Uh, 31 was a fairly, uh, it was a safety crisis in college football. So the colleges are changing a number of rules. And uh, the NFL, for the first time, doesn't make all of those changes. Most, notab no, most noticeably, the down-by-contact rule. Now, to this day, as you well know, there is a difference between the down-by-contact rule and college, or excuse me, the, the yeah. Not down by contact. You're not down by contact in uh, necessarily college football. The rule just is down. different. Yeah, down, just down. It, it, it began in 1932. Prior to 1932, the rule is the same in NFL college high school. You, you effectively had to be held down by the tackler. And if you weren't, you could get up and run, which was almost a legalization in a certain way of piling on. You had to make darn sure that guy couldn't get up and go. And in 1932, is for safety purposes, uh, the colleges changed their rule to say, okay, if the runner goes to the ground, whether or not there's been contact by a defensive player and his knee touches, then he's down. The NFL stays with the old rule. Uh, and incidentally, we changed that rule uh, in 1955 and 1956, uh, where the modern the rule we're now familiar with, if there's defensive contact, it sends the player to the ground uh, and his knee touches, he's down. He can't, he doesn't have to be held down. He can't get up and go. That too was a safety rule uh, resulting from a, an injury to the uh, 49ers great halfback, Hugh McElhaney. All right, but getting back to the, the passing game, we now have our own rules committee in 1932. In 1933, uh, now we begin to make some changes of our own. And it's designed, we're, we're trying to inject more offense into the game. I think in 1932, the combined scoring average of two teams is something like 16, 17 points a game, not very much. As I said earlier, we're, we're, we're in the entertainment business. Where's the entertainment? I think in the 48 games that were played, 10 of them were tie games and a bunch of them were scoreless ties. So we're looking for points. Uh, we do two things. We move the goalposts from the end line to the goal line to encourage field goal kicking and points. Uh, and we change, we relax the prohibition that uh, a, forward, uh, a forward pass had to be thrown from at least five yards behind the line of scrimmage. Beginning in 33 in the National Football League, you could throw a forward pass from anywhere from behind the line of scrimmage, which opens up a lot more possibilities. Uh, most of the teams were in the single wing in those days, but you could the tailback and fake a run into the line, stand up, throw a quick pass. 
uh, if you were, a, the Bears were the only T formation team, but uh, if you were under center, you could uh, just stand up, take a step back, throw a quick pass over the middle to an end. So it'd be that, that those, those were designed to open up the offense. Now, I might mention for the first year time in 1933, uh, we had a championship game. Prior to 33, uh, whether the league had eight teams, 10 teams, or 17 teams, uh, you just compiled the one loss tied percentages of all the teams, and the team with the best percentage was the league champion. Uh, beginning in 33, George Preston Marshall pushed, let's divide the 10 teams into two divisions, and at the end of the season, let's have a championship game like the World Series in baseball. So in 1933, uh, the first championship game is in Wrigley Field in Chicago. The Bears are hosting the Giants. Pretty decent crowd for that era, 26,000. Pretty decent crowd. Uh, the game is a fantastic game. The Bears win 23 to 21. There are three field goals by Jack Manders. Uh, the rules are having an, in, uh, an impact. Uh, uh, the teams combined for 618 yards from scrimmage. The league average in 1932 was only about 400. Uh, they combined for about uh, 358 yards passing, which is a staggering number in 1932. Uh, Harry Newman, the Giants tailback, at one point completes eight straight passes. All this is uh, remarkable for the period. Moreover, there are six lead changes. I'd be willing to bet that none of the 26,000 people in Wrigley Field had ever seen a football game with six lead changes. I, I would speculate that in the whole history of football, <laughs> there may never have been a game with six lead changes. I mean, most football games, the final score was 10 to three or seven to six or 13 to seven. Uh, this was, but this, uh, you know, the field goals, the the, uh, the passing uh, that day, it was really uh, the lead changes, uh, the come from, the rallies, the fantastic finish, all of it's a snapshot of the future. Uh, you can see where this is headed. Uh, and there are more changes on the way. Uh, in 1930, and some of these, this is a very interesting thing. Some of the, some of the most important changes that happened in the National Football League are actually college rules that the NFL, NFL continues to track. For instance, in 1934, the, the colleges take the initiative of uh, reducing the belly of the ball by three quarters of an inch, which makes it obviously a much more passable ball. Uh, with a bigger ball, uh, most players kind of palm the ball and push it forward. Bill, do you remember when we were looking at that video that films sent us uh, from the 30s? Uh, yes. The passers, they didn't have big enough hit. You couldn't grip that ball. They palmed it, and it was almost, uh, as I say, they, they almost pushed it forward. Uh, and so, I'll tell you what amazed me was that some of them could still throw the ball pretty far with that push. But with the smaller ball, you could grip it uh, the way we're accustomed to seeing players grip the ball and just whip it around. Uh, this is a huge change, and uh, we, we do the same thing. We could hardly have done anything else. I don't think we could have purchased a football if we if we hadn't made the change. Uh, <laughs> on our own, though, we make this change. Prior to 1934, any incomplete pass in the end zone was a touchback, which obviously discouraged passing if you got near the goal line. In 34, we we say it's not an automatic touchback except on fourth down, or except 
if it's the second in the same series of downs. Uh, so this makes it a little, a little more likely. It, it opens, once again, it's opening up the offense. Another 34 change, which was initiated by the colleges, a uh, very important change, is uh, it eliminates the penalty for the second incomplete pass in the same series of downs. Prior to 1934, second or more incomplete pass in the same series is a five-yard penalty. So if on first down you throw an incomplete pass, okay, it's going to be second and 15. Uh, if you throw another incomplete pass on second and 15, it's going to be third and 20. Uh, and so forth. Incidentally, the historical reason for that is this. When the forward pass is legalized in 1906, many of the people on the rules committee, they hate the forward pass, all right? They want football to be a running game. And the forward pass is legalized, not so much as a means for moving the ball, but it's legalized as a means of the threat of the forward pass getting the defensive players off the line of scrimmage, forcing the defense to deploy its players uh, around the field. Uh, it's a safety measure to release the crunch uh, and crush of having all 22 players within about uh, five yards or less of either side of the line. But they hated the forward pass, so they put a bunch of restrictions on it that would discourage its use. And now this is being relaxed in the 30s. And the NFL is going to take advantage of it. And as I said, we're, uh, our passing numbers in the 30s, uh, 1933, we're averaging uh, two teams. We're averaging 155 a game. A couple of years later, by 1938, we're at 211. 1939, that jumps to 257. By 1943, that's 282. Uh, I think 1947, it's 330. You can see it's it's going up every year. Uh, and these rules are helping to achieve that. Now in 1930, uh, 1938, we, we, uh, we, further, uh, we further liberalized the uh, uh, incomplete passes in the end zone. Beginning in 38, only the fourth down pass in the end zone is a touchback. No longer will the second one be an incomplete pass. Once again, makes it a little uh, little easier to throw the ball uh, when you're getting close to the end zone. You don't have to worry about what is actually a loss of possession. You know, if you if you threw an incomplete pass on second down in the end zone, that was a loss of possession uh, under the old rule. So these rules in the 30s are uh, helping to liberalize the passing game. Now, the other great challenge that I alluded to occurs in the 1970s. And it's the result of uh, partly, an uh, partly a, a revolution in defensive technique, partly a fact that I think the colleges changed their substitution rule and go to two platoon football. But in the 1960s, around 1965, 1966, uh, what begins to emerge is a technique, and it's happening mostly in the AFL, almost exclusively in the AFL, called bump and run. The traditional alignment of defensive backs prior to that time, they'd line up about five or six yards off the line of scrimmage. They'd line up five or six yards off the line and run with the receiver. Uh, there were occasional exceptions to that. Raymond Barry once told me Abe Woodson was the first person who ever played press coverage against him. But uh, basically, it's, it's, it's soft backed off coverage, man-to-man. -man. Now, in the mid-60s, teams started playing bump and run at the AFL. 
also there's a little teams start to migrate to playing more zone defense. Uh, I think prior to that time, there had been some zones, but I think most teams played man-to-man in the professional leagues. You also have this happening. The colleges in 1965 changed their substitution rules so that they will have unlimited substitution and therefore two-platoon football. Prior to that time, since 53, they had limited substitution, single-platoon football. You had to play both ways. Beginning in 65, when they're playing two platoons, now you're having players coming into the league, defensive backs who have who've been specialists during their college careers. So the defensive play is getting better. And the offense, the, the passing game begins to uh, shrivel up uh, as, a, as a, you know, a result of that. In 1960, let's see, 1962, we averaged 387 yards passing per game. Uh, and this number begins to gradually decline throughout the rest of the decade. By 1970, the merger year, we're averaging 322. Uh, a couple of three years later, we're at 281. Moreover, if passing is down, so are total yards, so are points. This is not to the point of a real crisis in the National Football League. Uh, and the answer to that dilemma was the illegal contact rule. And it went through through phase, three phases. And of course, we're all accustomed to the illegal contact rule. We've seen it to anybody who's 45 or 50 years old, probably has never watched a professional game in which the rule was not in effect. But prior to 1974, there was no such rule. And you could bump that guy when he came off the line of scrimmage, and you could bump him all the way down the field until the ball was in the air, which is when the rules for defensive pass interference became applicable. So we're trying to address that. And in 1974, the first, the first shot at the rule says you can chuck, a defender can chuck a player once more than three yards beyond the line of scrimmage. Now, the problem with that rule was each defender was permitted to chuck him once. So as a wide receiver ran through the zones of a defense, uh, you know, the near side cornerback could chuck him. And if he, man- he manages to still be upright, uh, the inside linebacker can chuck him. And the far side linebacker can chuck him. And then the free safety can chuck him if he somehow gets to the next level. Uh, he's running He's running the gauntlet. <laughs> that's exactly what was going on. This was not entirely effective, as you can imagine. In 1977, we tried again. And we said, okay, you can chuck him in the three-yard zone or you can chuck him beyond the three-yard zone, but you can't chuck them in both places, but you've still got the same old problem. Uh, If the quarterback chucks you somewhere and you get away from him, uh, the inside linebacker is going to have a shot at you and so forth and so on. Then in 1978, we went to the rule that all of us are familiar with, and we said, okay, the wide receiver, any receiver can be chucked within five yards of the line of scrimmage, but Beyond five yards, you're running with them. And the th- and you can understand the theory of this. Uh, the theory is, okay, in that five-yard zone, he's potentially a blocker. Uh, and therefore, yeah, you can contact him. But beyond five yards, uh, we're going to treat him as a, res- as a player who's trying to catch a pass. And therefore, you've got to be running with him. And I think it was uh, Paul Brown, it's, you know, it was, he was always pushing for the clean release. He was a person who said... Uh, you know, the big pass, the long gainer, 
that's a hallmark of professional football and that's disappearing from our game and he was he was pushing for the, the clean release off the line and I think he's really he, you could call him the architect of the uh illegal contact rule but then immediately or i shouldn't say immediately uh, but as an example in 1977 passing yards per game were 283.8 i think which was probably the second lowest since about 1945. It jumps the next year to 317.7, kind of a modest jump. But after studying film for an off season and realizing what they had, the next year jumps to 360. And the year after that, it jumps to 391. It took them a while to figure out just what they had. But once the offensive coordinators figured it out, they began to exploit it. And I think it's, you know, now it's almost 500 yards per game. But I often say that rule is the most important rule change uh, in the National Football League in the last 50 years because it, it normalized the relationship between the uh, defender and the uh, offensive receiver and uh, provided really, it, that provided the framework by which we became America's game, I think. Wow. Bill, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts, but you know that it's been unbelievable. Well, I told you, Joel's a Joel's a great guest, great historian, and uh, and a, and a great raconteur. So yes, thanks a million, Joel. And, yeah, uh, with your permission, at uh, at some point in time in the in the near future, we'll have you back and do it again. Absolutely, I'd be happy. Yeah, Joel, thanks so much. We we deeply appreciate it. We think this is something that our fans are and your will be now your fans really wanted to hear about so we're glad we were finally able to do this all right well thank you for the uh, opportunity uh rick i really enjoyed it thank you so much guys okay all right. stay Good safe night. everybody bye-bye Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.